So please turn with me to Mark eight twenty seven through 33. That is where we will behold and consider the wonders of God and his word this morning. Mark eight twenty seven through 33. For about a year now, we've been going on this journey through Mark together. And every time I've preached, I think, at least I think, um, I have observed in some way, shape, or form the message of the book of Mark. It, it, we've said if you could sum up the entire message, uh, or if you could sum up the entire book of Mark in one message, it might be something like this. Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, and he surprisingly serves and suffers in order to save his people. Follow him. So we are reaching now the halfway point of Mark's narrative. And really, up to this point, the primary message we have seen has been the first half of that overall message. Really, what we've seen so far is this. Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. The beginning of Mark's gospel begins this way. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we know this up front, and we've known this, and we know this because we're on this side of the cross. So it could be easy for us to take for granted as we read Mark that other people in the, in the story know this as well. That we might see these people and these historic figures and, and think that they have the same knowledge with the same degree of clarity that we do now. But in fact, they don't. Really, the driving question for the people in Mark's narrative has been this. Who is this Jesus? Who is this person, Jesus? Well, today in Mark eight twenty-seven through 33, we are actually going to see that this question is, is, is answered for the first time in the most explicit way it has been. In this way, it's, it, our passage is kind of a climax for the book of Mark, but we, it's really not the climax because the climax is the cross. Everything is driving to the cross in Mark. So, so if this is not the true climax, what we really have is, is kind of the fulcrum or the hinge of Mark's narrative. How so? Well, up to this point, we have seen Jesus' power and his great authority. That is what is testifying to who he is. Jesus' power and his authority. That's how Mark has been showing Jesus to reveal himself. However, here it from this point on, we're going to see a shift in Mark's narrative. Now we're going to see that Jesus is going to reveal himself as the Christ, not with power, but through pain and suffering. Indeed, pain, not power, marks the path to the throne, to victory. So we begin to see this in the second half of Mark. Indeed, this is going to be the first of three times that Jesus will predict his suffering. And so in this way, our passage is is a hinge on which the whole narrative of Mark pivots. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, but now we will start to see the second half of of the message of Mark. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, will surprisingly suffer in order to save his people. So to confess Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, is to confess him as the suffering Christ. 
the suffering Messiah. This is our confession as Christians. And we cannot separate that from our confession, the suffering of Christ. All our salvation depends on it. The disciples' salvation depends on it. But as we saw clearly last week, they continue to struggle with unbelief. They are like the blind man at Bethsaida with partial eyesight. They see in part now. Well, will they get this? Will they get this reality that Jesus is the Christ? They kind of do, as we will see. Look with me at our passage, Mark eight twenty-seven through 33. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So we'll consider this passage in two parts. First, we will see the confession in verses 27 through 30. Jesus is the Christ. Then secondly, in verses 31 through 33, we will see that suffering marks the Messiah's path to the throne. Suffering marks the Christ's path. The main idea of this whole passage is Jesus is the Christ. Let's dig in and see what the fullness of that confession means. So look with me at verses 27 through 30. To get to this answer, to arrive at this confession, Jesus asks two questions. First, he asks a general question, and he receives a general answer. Then Jesus asks a specific question, and he receives not just a specific answer, but he receives a very personal answer. Confession. Look at verses 27 through 28. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. So here we have the general question and the general answer. Well, where have we been? We've been, uh, we've just seen Jesus heal the blind man at Bethsaida. It was a two-stage healing. Remember? Jesus touched his eyes, and, and, and the man could see partially. He could see people walking, but they were like trees. And we said that this points to the, the disciples' partial understanding of who Jesus is. They see with their spiritual eyes partially, not fully, not clearly. We're about to see that illustrated. So, so we go from that scene to here. The disciples and Jesus, they're on their way to, they they go to Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, Jesus strikes up a conversation. Jesus asks his disciples, he takes a, he takes a, 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 he wants to know from the disciples what the general opinion is about him. Who are people saying he is? Now, who are these people? Well, in Mark, we've seen that, that there's really three categories of people, three character categories. There's Jesus and his disciples. Then there's the crowd that always inevitably forms when Jesus, when Jesus arrives. 
And then we have the religious rulers, leaders, and Pharisees. So Jesus is asking for the general opinion of the public, not you disciples. What is everybody else saying? What's the popular opinion of me? What's the general consensus? Who do people say I am? So the disciples give a general answer. It's a three-in-one answer. In verse 28, again, they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. So we've seen this list before. In fact, in Mark six fourteen through 15, where Herod hears of what Jesus is doing, it's there we read that some are saying he is John the Baptist raised from the dead, Elijah, or a prophet like a prophet of old. Let's consider these, these identities. First, with regard to John the Baptist, people believed that Jesus could be his ghost. In fact, this is what Herod concluded because of all the things that Jesus was doing. He thought this must be John the Baptist's ghost. With regard to Elijah, this is probably coming from Malachi 4.5, a prophecy that says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Jesus himself will address this prophecy in Mark 9, 12 through 13. And he will identify John the Baptist as the Elijah who was to come to prepare his way. And ironically, Elijah will appear in the very next scene with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Thirdly, we see the, the option that Jesus is one of the prophets. This, this is uh, slightly varied from what we see in, in Mark six fourteen through 15, where we read he is like one of the prophets. Here the report is that people say he is one of the prophets. The parallel passage in Luke 9 says that he is a certain prophet of old risen up. This is probably loosely connected to the prophecy in Deuteronomy 18, 15 where God promised to raise up a prophet like Moses to whom the people of Israel would listen. Jesus is that prophet. He is the promised prophet of, that, of, of Deuteronomy 18.15. But here the people think that he's just an old prophet risen up. One of, one of the old prophets who has, has risen up. So John the Baptist, Elijah, and a prophet. Interestingly, There is no consensus among the general public as to who Jesus is. Really, the only consensus we can gather here is that they don't actually think he is the Messiah. Of all the options they give, not one of them is that Jesus is actually the Messiah. The popular opinion, though, is divided. They think he could be a number of different characters, but not the Messiah. And, and, and we know that, that in spite of all his authority and power and, and the things that Jesus has been doing, Jesus has been keeping the, a secret. He's been, he's been trying to, to, he's been telling people to, to keep quiet with regard to what he's done in his identity. And in fact, uh, the only ones in Mark thus far who have identified Jesus with any title, are Jesus himself, he called himself the Son of Man, we'll talk more about that later, and demons have identified Jesus as the Holy One of God, the Son of God, Son of the Most High God. And, and when they do, Jesus silences the demons because they knew him, Mark one thirty four tells us. So Jesus has been keeping his identity under wraps, and we've pointed this out over and over because Jesus is going to reveal who he is, not on other people's terms, but on his terms. He's going to reveal who he is at the cross. Now, 
This runs counter to the expectation of who the Messiah will be. In fact, uh, we read in John 5 that after Jesus fed the 5,000, the people actually tried to take him. He, he sensed that the people were going to try to take him by force and make him king. But he will not be revealed as the Messiah on anyone else's terms other than his. He will reveal who he is through the cross. And we're about to see this very, very clearly. So, the popular opinion is divided. They don't see him as the Messiah, but those who have eyes to see do recognize him, at least in part. Let's move, Jesus moves from the general to the specific. Let's look at this. Jesus now asks a personal question, and we see a personal confession in verses 29 through 30. And he asks them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So Jesus moves from the general and the public to the specific and the personal. Jesus asks his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Not the crowd, not not the Pharisees, not the religious leaders. Who do you say that I am? If this is not the question of the ages, right? We all have to answer this question. If, if this life is temporary, if this life is but a pilgrimage to the eternal city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God, if this life, if we're just exiles until we get to that heavenly city, the new Jerusalem where we will, where we will live with God forever... If that's where we'll go, or if where we'll go is the lake of fire and eternal death, then this question is the question of the ages. Because how you answer this question determines eternal life or eternal death. And everyone must answer it. And everyone does answer it in one way or another. Whether humanity, whether we realize it or not, we answer this question either passively or actively. We say, yes, Jesus is the Christ, and we live accordingly. Or we say, yes, Jesus is the Christ, and we deny him in his rule by our life. Or we actively say, no, he is not the Christ, and we live according to to our way, or people give no answer at all, which is really an answer, isn't it? Everyone must answer this question, who is Jesus, and eternity hangs in the balance. It is a high-stakes question. The kingdom of God is not for the faint of heart. It calls for courage. It calls for boldness. But it's wrapped in meekness and humility because that boldness and that courage comes not from who we are, not from within, but in who we confess. We'll see that even more. So it's not really a gamble when you look at it from that perspective, but to the world, to us before we come to know Christ, this question requires everything. And we'll see even more of that as we uh, get further into Mark and what it means for disciples to follow him. But for now, this is the question, who is Jesus? And wouldn't you know who gives the answer? Peter speaks up, right? 
Look at uh, Peter's answer, which is really a confession. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. If the question that Jesus asked was the question of the ages, then the answer that Peter gives is the confession of the ages. And it's even more so than he actually realizes. Peter says, you are the Christ. What exactly is Peter saying? Does he know exactly what he's saying? Or is there more to it? The answer is yes to both of those questions. Peter knows in part what he is confessing. But there's a whole lot more to it as well. So let's look and unpack this idea of who the Christ is. You know by now that I love a good biblical theological journey where we see how all the promises culminate in Christ. All of God's promises culminate in him. So let's trace a little bit of the nature of, of the Christ. So when Peter confesses who Jesus is, notice he says, the Christ, not just Christ, but the Christ. And throughout preaching in Mark, I've used Christ and Messiah interchangeably. You've probably noticed that. Well, the Greek word for Christ is the translation of the Hebrew word from which we get the word Messiah. So in the Old Testament, these words are the same. If you were reading the Greek Old Testament, and you would see Christ. And if you were reading the Hebrew Old Testament, you would see the word from which we get Messiah. In the Old Testament, both of these words refer to anoint or anointed one. In fact, when you're reading through your Old Testament and you stumble across the word anointed, anoint, anointed one, you're looking at the word Christ in the Greek and the word where we derive Messiah in the Hebrew. Same word, Christ, Messiah, anointed one. So how did these words come to be imbued with such meaning that they became a title? Well, through God's providential intention, his design, and his covenantal promises. First, his intention, his design, is that his king would be the anointed one. That's the title that we see given. In fact, Saul, David calls Saul God's anointed. David himself is referred to as God's anointed. It is God's king. And then we also see in the covenantal promises where this, this comes out, this, this Christ, this promised Christ and Messiah, this anointed one. In 2 Samuel 7, God promises King David that he would give him a son who will be a king whose kingdom never ends. He would establish uh, an eternal kingdom. God would build his house through him. And God comes to David through the prophet Nathan and says this, I will raise up your offspring after you and I will establish his kingdom he shall build me he shall build a house for my name and i will establish his throne the throne of his kingdom forever this is the promise to david but we know the story the kingdom falls judgment comes the people are exiled and 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 the line of david looks to be in jeopardy but through prophecy and time the people return to the land, they're in the land, the people in the land of the kingdom, but they have no king. But this promise endures the promise of a son of David who would be king, who would restore the kingdom of God. This was the expectation. 
They're looking for the anointed one. They're looking for the Christ. They're looking for this promised son of David. How would he restore this kingdom? Well, a natural conclusion would be that the Christ, the Messiah, the promised son of David, would do it a lot like David did, right? David came in, overthrew all of Israel's enemies. The son will do the same. He will come in, overthrow all of Israel's enemies, establish the kingdom, and reign, as Isaiah 9 says, in justice and righteousness. So, at the very least, the promised Messiah, the Christ, was understood to be the promised son of David who would reestablish Israel and God's kingdom forever and reign as God's king. At the very least, this is what Peter's confessing. He knows the promise of this son of David. And this is what people are expecting. And Peter is right. But in part, because there is much more to this Messiah, the anointed one, especially with regard to his mission. We'll consider more of his nature as well. And then we will look at his mission. So to understand the full nature of the Christ, we have to go back to the beginning. Right after the fall of Adam and Eve, God makes the promise that he will raise a son from the woman, an offspring of Eve, who will crush the true enemy, the serpent. The Christ will come, has come to destroy the works of Satan, sin and death. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, God speaking to the serpent, And between your offspring and her, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The promised offspring would undo the curse of Satan. This promised offspring to Eve localizes in the promised offspring to David. This offspring of Eve would be David's son. This is who the king is. This is who the promised Messiah is. The anointed one would crush Satan. But built within God's promise to David to give him an offspring, a son who will reign on the throne, is even more. There's the reality that he will be a son to God, not just to David. That his kingdom will be God's kingdom. 1 Chronicles 17, God speaking to David says, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. This is who the Messiah is. He is the anointed one. He is David's son. So he is a son of David king, and he is God's son. He is a son of God king, and he will reign on God's throne, God's kingdom. This is the promised Messiah. He is the offspring of the woman who will defeat Satan. He is the son of David, the son of God, and he will reign on God's throne. And what Psalm 2 tells us, where David is actually prophesying, of this one to come, the promise is that all who take refuge in this one will be blessed. This king, this Christ, is salvation for all humanity. So admittedly, there's a lot of Old Testament freight in this one title, 
Christ, Messiah, anointed one. This confession, whether Peter fully realizes it or not, is massive, even more so than he knows. It's like one of those huge container ships. Uh, Do you remember the one a couple years ago that uh, got lodged in the Suez Canal and basically shut down the global economy for uh, quite a little while because they couldn't move it? It was so big. That's what... That's what this title Christ is like. Those ships can weigh up to fully loaded over 225,000 tons. They hold 24,000 containers. Imagine one of those ships just drifting along the sea slowly along the waves and coming into a port without any way to stop itself. This is what this title Christ is like. Moving across, fully loaded, with all of this Old Testament meaning, all of, goal, of God's promises, just moving slowly and steadily across the waves of time and the ages until it comes here to Peter's lips and he confesses this earth-shaking truth for the first time. You are the Christ. Changes everything. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So why the continued silence? Because as we pointed out, people don't really understand the full nature of the Christ's mission. Even Peter, as we will see, doesn't understand that this promised king, this promised son of David, the promised Messiah, is also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who through suffering and dying will save God's people. Pain, not power, will mark the Christ's path. Suffering is what will ultimately save. Look with me at part 2, verses 31 through 33. Suffering marks the Messiah's path to the throne. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Right after Peter's confession of who Jesus is, Jesus begins to teach them what it is he must do. Notice here, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, all but confirming, all but confirming who he is as God's chosen king. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Remember, we've seen Jesus give this title before, referred to himself as the Son of Man. And there in Daniel seven thirteen through 14, we see that the Son of Man is given by God, the Ancient of Days, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him, an everlasting dominion, a kingdom that no one will be able to destroy. It will not pass away. Jesus is confirming the very realities that are built into this title. And then he lays out the mission. It's a four-part mission. Notice the four-part mission is to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, and to rise again. Suffering, rejection, and death. Sounds a lot like defeat. Sounds a lot like defeat to Peter's ears, as we will as we will see. If the son of David is to be victorious and deliver his people from their enemy and reign forever, how then can he suffer and be rejected and die and expect to be 
victorious. Isaiah 53. The the true enemy, the true problem for humanity is sin and death. And so we see that it is through these very things, suffering, rejection, and death, that the Messiah will actually gain victory, that the Messiah will sit on the throne. Just think of these, these ideas in light of Isaiah 53. The Christ will suffer. He will be crushed, for it is God's will to crush him, to put him to grief, Isaiah 53.10. The Christ will be rejected. He is the stone that the builders rejected, Psalm 118, the Christ is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53, 3. The Christ will be killed. The Christ is like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, Isaiah 53, 7. The Christ has his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, Isaiah 53, 9. The Christ will pour out his soul, to death, Isaiah 53, 12. All of these things speaking of the suffering servant. And Christ is revealing that this suffering servant is him. He is the Christ. We know that all of these realities, suffering, rejection, and death, culminate at the cross. And we'll see in a moment by Peter's response that these, these things do not fit his categories of who the Messiah is. And, and, and in fact, he is, he is giving a picture of what the bigger problem is here, sin. Because, because as we'll see, Peter will reject what Jesus is saying. It's a sin that goes all the way back to Adam. Peter's response proves the point of what the Messiah must do because, because it's this age-old sin that marks our sin nature that says we know better than God. But it is this very plan of suffering that Peter tries to reject that saves all of humanity, that saves him, that saves you, that saves me. Through his suffering, Jesus makes an offering for guilt, Isaiah 53.10. Through his rejection, Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Isaiah 53.4. Through his death, Jesus makes many to be accounted righteous because he has bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53, 11 and 12. This is the path to victory, born in and preordained by the mind of God. Jesus the Messiah will conquer sin through his death, thus disarming Satan from the only weapon he has against you, and that's to say that you're guilty of sin. But in Christ... The verdict is, you're righteous. There's still one final piece to make this victory complete, though. It's not only necessary for Jesus the Messiah to suffer, to be rejected, and to die. It is also necessary for him after three days to rise. Why? Because this not only testifies to Jesus' perfect sinless life, sin's curse, death could not hold him down because he was sinless, The original promise to David was also that the promised Messiah would reign forever. He will be a forever king. Peter, after the resurrection of Christ, we read it this morning, preaches this reality that that David understood what what God meant when he promised him a son who would reign forever on the throne. Peter tells us that David prophesied that one of his sons would be risen up 
For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. David foresaw this day. Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of David, the Messiah, and he will conquer sin and, and through his death, but, he, but through his death he will also give eternal life and reign forever. This is the Messiah's path to victory. This is the anointed's path to victory. It far supersedes anything that we can muster up in the minds of man. And Peter's reaction testifies to this. Look at verses 32 and 33. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I want you to notice that first sentence, and he said this plainly. In this sentence is the hope of your salvation. How's that? Well, this word plainly, it conveys the idea of openness, frankness, confidence. Jesus says these things matter-of-factly. This is what must happen. This is my Father's way, and Jesus embraces it completely. It's just the way things are. We said earlier that, that boldness and confidence is, and courage is needed for the kingdom of God. Well, that couldn't come from us. It was Jesus' boldness, confidence, and courage. Here in the face of the oncoming suffering and death of the cross, he says this plainly. Peter could not look more opposite than Jesus right now. Jesus, if Jesus is the unflappable veteran quarterback, you've seen this in football games, who's just standing there directing traffic against the oncoming blitz of the cross, Jesus is, uh, Peter is the rookie quarterback who gets in there and abandons the play right away, scrambling around trying to do whatever he can to the detriment of the entire team. Just look at this. Here, Jesus says this plainly, and Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Now, the only one who has has rebuked in scripture up to this point with this kind of authority is Jesus himself. He's rebuked storms. He's rebuked unclean spirits. And here we see that that Peter is taking the exact opposite stance of Jesus. We know this by the parallel in the text. Jesus began to teach and Peter began to rebuke. So if Jesus is, is speaking confidently and plainly, with authority because he rests his faith in the Father's plan, where does Peter get his boldness from? It's in himself. It's his arrogance, is it not? He knows better. He thinks he knows better than the Messiah. He has just confessed Christ. He has just said, you are the promised son of David. Now let me tell you how this has to go down. Let me do it my way. If you confess Christ with your mouth but deny him by your life. You're not really confessing the fullness of who he is. So Jesus will make known to him where his allegiance lies. We see that that Peter is just fully representing the partial blindness of the blind man we saw earlier, right? He sees partially. He's confessed Christ, but he hasn't confessed the fullness of who he is. 
So Jesus will not leave him there. Jesus rebukes. First, notice that Mark says Jesus turns and sees the other disciples. What does this tell us? Well, there's a couple of interpretations here. They say that uh, one interpretation says that perhaps Peter is speaking for the rest of the group. And, and, and so Jesus recognizes this when he turns and sees. Another uh, interpretation says that uh, Jesus sees Peter's words, his rebuke, as a threat to the other disciples. I think in light of the context where we've just seen Jesus saying that unbelief is like leaven that can infect and spread, I think we should see this, uh, the second interpretation here. Jesus recognizes that Peter's words here of unbelief are a threat. And so he rebukes the words. He rebukes Peter at the source. And he says, you are actually aligning yourself with Satan right now. Get behind me. Nothing is going to stop me on this path to the cross. God opposes the proud. Here, Peter, in his in his Lack of humility is being opposed. And it's clear where that allying with Satan is sinful man's natural bent. Because Jesus gives the reason for, uh, Peter's, for rebuking Peter. He says, you are setting your, your mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. So considering the things of God versus the things of man inevitably inevitably leads us to just practical application from this gospel. Uh, from this, from this uh, uh, yeah, practical gospel application here from this narrative. Peter illustrates the whole problem of man here. We've touched on it. He looks like Adam saying, I know better than God. This whole scene represents the fall of man. Peter's saying, yes, you are the king, but we're going to do it my way. I know better. This is the DNA of our sin nature. We can't conceive of the things the mind of God conceives of. The cross is folly, and Peter shows this. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the things of God are folly to sinful man. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Peter, just like us, oftentimes doesn't even realize that this rebuke is actually saving his life. If Jesus were to have diverted off of this path, Peter would have been lost. We would have been lost. So the... The one point of application here is that we must all answer this question, who is Jesus? And we cannot customize him to how we want him to be. To confess Christ is to confess his cross and his resurrection, the fullness of who he is. You cannot divorce the two. He is the king and he is the king who suffered and died and rose again. This is what it means to confess Christ. If we ignore him, we ally ourselves with the old sinful Adam and Satan. If we reject him by our lives or by our words, we ally ourselves with the old sinful man and Satan. There's no other choices. We confess him for all that he is or we deny him. 
So this is our salvation. We, are all, we were all lost, and if you are still lost, and this gospel testifies to you by the Holy Spirit, then you confess Christ, and it is your salvation. This is our salvation. This confession is not a confession of an idea or a notion. It's a confession of a reality. Jesus is the Christ. In that confession is our salvation. So we confess that. It's our identity. But it's also our assurance. Inevitably, our faith right now is like a pair of ski goggles or ski glasses. Have you ever been skiing or uh, been out uh, with your perhaps just your regular glasses and experienced this where all of a sudden they start fogging up just a little bit? And it becomes harder and harder to see. On this side of the new heavens and new earth, inevitably, unbelief starts to cloud our vision at times. And where is it we look to gain clarity? We look back to the gospel. We look back to the cross, to the resurrection. This is your assurance. It is your salvation, but it is also your assurance. And so even as Will noted this morning, we remind each other of this. We attack attack unbelief head on with the assurance of the gospel. You are saved because of who Christ is. And thirdly and finally, it is also our proclamation. It's our proclamation. Notice Peter in the passages we read this morning, he didn't get it here, right? But when he experienced it, beheld it with his eyes, on the other side of the cross where we are now, he saw the Christ die, suffer, resurrect, and now his confession of the Christ turns into a fullness of proclamation when he's preaching in Acts 2.36. He says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. The fullness of the confession. God will not leave us in our partial understanding. He did not leave Peter there. Peter's confession becomes full in his proclamation. Jesus is the Christ, and he is the Christ who was crucified, and this is the hope of salvation. This is the hope of our assurance, and this in turn becomes our proclamation. This is our confession. Jesus is the Christ. Would you pray with me?